0: You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is a new show from Medusa, our first English language podcast. So please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a new podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. Medusa publishes a lot of in-depth original journalism, but these stories links to the wider community of experts and reporters working in this field. They're not always clear. Hi, I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And as I introduce the subject of today's show, I want to stress that I love our original theme music, which was created by Viktor Davidov, while also acknowledging that the music's upbeat tone is perhaps not the perfect match for the content that comes next. Just a quick warning to listeners before we dig in, some of what you're about to hear includes descriptions of sexual violence and domestic abuse, and there's a bit of salty language in there too. So on today's show we'll be looking at rape allegations in Veliki Novgorod, where a journalist named Alina Shiglova says a local chief editor sexually assaulted her at a party in late September. The next morning, he basically apologized for it in a rambling text message. It took a couple of days before Shaglova managed to see a doctor who promptly said he was required to report her injuries to the police. But at the same time, he refused to conduct a gynecological exam without a police form. The accused rapist's wife, it turns out, yes, he's married, and so is Shaglova, by the way is a police colonel, and she's actually tried to get Shiglova to drop her charges. The prospects for an investigation looked pretty grim until Shaglova went public about the rape. National news outlets then picked up the story, and her employer, Novgorod.ru then published a statement in her defense. A full-scale felony sexual assault case is now underway. Unfortunately, there's nothing unusual about violence against women, not in Russia or anywhere in the world. But Russia is both the focus of this podcast and it's a special case, because... Lawmakers decriminalized first defense domestic violence in 2017 in a major setback for women's safety. To get a better sense of violence against women in Russia today, the consequences of decriminalizing domestic violence two years ago, and how women are depicted in Russia generally now, I spoke to a handful of journalists and activists who work in this field. But first, I want to spend a bit more time on Mrs. Sheklova, whose story is the focus of a mid-October article by Medusa Special Correspondent Irina Kravsova, who traveled to Veliki Novgorod and met with the individuals involved in what happened to her. At 2.40 a.m., Saturday, September 28th, journalist Alina Sheglova finally reached her apartment and immediately ran into the bathroom. She was all in tears, lying on the floor in her torn evening dress, as her husband Ivan. When he asked his wife what had happened... She said that Mikhail Bagalugov, the editor-in-chief of the Novgorod municipal newspaper, had raped her hours earlier at a party at his newsroom. Hearing this, my husband said, Misha Bagalugov, I don't know if I believe that, says Shaglova. but her husband became convinced when she described the assault in detail. Then and there, her husband tried to contact Bagalugov, a close friend since childhood, but he didn't answer his phone. In the morning, Bagalugov called the husband himself and said that nothing had happened between him and Shaglova, but... Thirty minutes later, he telephoned again and said that he'd actually remembered that there was something that night, but it was all consensual. Trust him. Bagalugov also tried calling Alina, but she refused to answer. He then texted her the following message, which Shaglova showed to Medusa, and I will read this in the creepiest way I can. Alina, I know you'll never forgive me, and I'll never forgive myself. The only thing with all this is that I'd never dare to humiliate you just out of desire. That's not who I am. Inadequacy is no excuse. I I know that. But this nasty thing that happened, just like you consented to, it was the booze talking. It would have been better if you'd killed me. All I ask is that we don't now ruin each other's lives. I've lost a friend. I've lost myself. I've lost my self-respect with all this nastiness. That's the truth. I'm a complete hideous jackass. I know that. And I'll punish myself, harshly. I've already summarized what happens next. Doctors wouldn't give her the help she needed. Police officers were reluctant to take her case seriously, and Bagalubov's own wife tried to derail the investigation. Shaglova says she's received an outpouring of support from colleagues since going public about the attack, but she says there are still some people encouraging her to forget about what happened, to avoid ruining Bagalubov's life. But it's not about that at all, she says, telling Medusa, the man committed a crime. He raped me. Am I really supposed to keep silent about this? After hearing what Sheglova had to endure in order to get the authorities to investigate her assault, in some ways it's a marvel that anybody at all speaks up in these situations. While there are undoubtedly many cases that are never reported, Sheklova is actually far from the only person working in Russia today to combat violence against women.
1: Yes, hi, good morning. Thank you.
0: That's Marina Piskolkova Parker, the founder and chair of the board of Center Anna, a national center for the prevention of violence against women that unifies more than 100 different organizations working across Russia and the former Soviet Union. It's been around since the 1990s. It is
1: um, the organization that uh, runs a national helpline for battered women, or for women suffering from actually now different forms of violence. Uh, it was started as a helpline for battered women.
0: The center is also a women's human rights organization, and it writes reports and monitors violence against women throughout Russia. One of its most intriguing attributes is the variety of its partnerships.
1: It's a network. That unifies organizations helping women in cases of violence. And this network actually includes both non governmental and state funded organizations and shelters.
0: Pisklakova's work with state funded organizations is noteworthy because Russia's Justice Ministry has actually designated Center Anna as a foreign agent, which requires the group to identify itself this way in all official documents. And to submit to additional regulatory oversight.
1: My organization in 2016 was listed as a foreign agent because somebody wrote a complaint to the Ministry of Justice on my work and on me.
0: Has the foreign agent status affected your ability to, to work and function?
1: The foreign agent law, basically it was designed to try to damage a reputation of organization internally. Basically, it was like these people are not sincere about what they do. They are paid by governments of other countries to say what they are saying. And uh, yes, not all governmental agencies are ready to cooperate with us. But I can say that, uh, on the other hand, we are still active even in promoting legislation on domestic violence. And yeah, we cannot be full experts on some things with the state as we used to be, but I guess it's okay. Uh, We are still doing what we we are supposed to do.
0: The Russian state has a complicated relationship with women's rights groups and violence against women generally. When you talk about these issues in Russia, it's impossible not to address the so-called decriminalization of domestic violence in 2017. This isn't quite what it sounds like, though it's not as far off as you wish it were. More than two years ago, the Russian government reduced the penalties for 1st offense domestic violence, defined as the beating of a relative, supposedly to correct what was seen as a discrepancy between punishment for violence in the home and, I don't know, fights in the street.
2: So, for example, the question of how often do people who say they're victims of sexual violence lie about that? And the answer is very not often at all. They're between 2 and 10%.
0: That's Hila Cohen, the news editor at Medusa's English Language Edition. Given that our jobs are all about translating and aggregating news from the Russian media, Hila and I are often dealing with content about violence against women. And we often find ourselves discussing how best to handle it for our Anglophone audience. It might be interesting if we kind of had the conversation we've had in Slack a few times, which is like I'm not even sure how to talk about this stuff, and i'm I'm like racked with guilt. here I am like putting together a podcast there are no other male speakers on this on this particular episode other than me, but I feel like that's already one too many on this for this subject and do you have advice as someone who translates and writes about this issue from time to time? How do you approach it, and what what would you tell guys like me?
2: I think that there's one key pillar is to have um, a focus on, I mean, starting with this sort of questioning position, right, of like, how can I act ethically? Like, that's already a starting point that, you know, the vast majority of media reports on these topics don't necessarily have. Um, But just starting with a perspective that's focused on People who are vulnerable to sexual violence as opposed to a perspective that's focused on the people who are likely to carry it out or who do carry it out um, I think is one one place to start.
0: Then you have to contend with the fact that readers are probably I mean if you just if you put us head to head a story about a gruesome murder and a story about a woman's life, you know one it, one is pres- is pres- was presumably going to draw more traffic than the other, right? And you know, it's 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 both a question of hunting clicks. That's like a kind of shallow interpretation of like, oh, if you're doing that, you're bad. But at the same time, it's like, well, which one's the better story from a storytelling t- perspective, and not from a kind of social justice perspective? Is there do you see like a is that like a tension, or am I not on anything there? First of all, I
2: wouldn't be so sure that readers are more interested in the gruesome murder story, um, especially given the fact that uh, gruesome murder has been a staple of storytelling about Russia for so very long. And I think readers, you know, are starting to to look at things with a bit more nuance. And and there's definitely a demand for that nuance. And then the question of good storytelling, well, hopefully good storytelling is ethical.
0: In terms of storytelling in news coverage, we've talked about whether or not the meta politics of Moscow's opposition, and specifically the Moscow City Duma elections, they sort of those protests overshadowed other things that were happening in Russian civil society. In large, in in some part, or large part, or I don't know how much part, some of this was demonstrations surrounding these prosecutions of women who were accused of violent crimes in the act of self defense.
2: Because one thing that even just in our kind of discussions. One thing that stuck out to me is this question of like, uh, what mobilizes people? Um, how do you get people involved in activism? And one thing that I've, I feel like I've learned from, uh, what's happened over the summer is that, um, mm, mobilizing people is important, but not in the sense that it's a numbers game, right? Like, um, and that also means that like, uh, whether or not a movement is overlooked, mm, it gets into some fuzzy territory because, the movement for recriminalizing domestic violence seems to be having a lot of success, even in a way that, that uh, the like, mass protests over the summer maybe aren't having. And that's because they've had this really persistent push, um, both from a core group of people and from more and more members of the public who are jumping in.
0: That phrase itself, decriminalization, is kind of misleading, I think, it, from the perspective of at least like an, an American English speaker. If I read that, it makes it sound like domestic violence is now legal which is not the case. And so do you think, is it, When we, I mean, I still use this phrase because it, it. well, I guess on one hand it kind of catches the reader's attention and it does kind of get to the core issue, which is that they've, you know, it's no longer treated as a felony, or at least not the, not the first time, right? Not first time offenses. And so that's what apparently led to this spike in cases of domestic violence and who knows about the unreported cases and so on. But I don't know, how do you feel about the language of, decriminalization. Is that the best way to describe it?
2: I think that as long as there's that context of uh, there's this whole separate category of violations that are called administrative violations, um, I often kind of go back and forth on, on how much we translate into, for example, the U.S. legal system um, from the Russian legal system, because oftentimes it does just take a few words to say, like, you know, this was a criminal violation. Uh, now it's an administrative violation. Here's the punishment that entails.
0: But when you talk about decriminalizing things, don't you, doesn't that Maybe I'm just being ignorant here, but doesn't that mean making it legal if you decriminalize something? Like, when people promote decriminalization of marijuana, they don't mean just make it a fine, because there already is that, at least in small amounts.
2: Yeah, that's true. There's this extra shade of meaning in in the Russophone legal system where uh, legalization and decriminalization are different things. And so I think, I mean, yeah, if you're saying something like, uh, I don't know, even the sentence jaywalking is a crime sounds uh, like a little much. Yeah, that's true. Every fifth woman in Russia has experienced domestic violence. 59% of Russians supported the 116 16 law, decriminalizing domestic violence. After the law was introduced, the amount of home violence cases raised by three times.
0: You're listening to a YouTube video promoting something called Project 911, an interactive multimedia project released in December 2018 that features a role-playing exercise called Game 116 where players take on the role of a woman caught in a violent relationship. You can fight, scream, reach out, or plead, but the game is a no-way-out scenario that's meant to educate the public, not challenge your turn-based strategy abilities. Project 911 is a non-profit initiative by the advertising agency Room 485. To find out more about how this came together, I spoke to Yelena Kalinina, a managing partner at the agency.
2: I
3: would it's it's a millennial minded creative agency. Uh, we do digital projects, we do creative projects.
0: How did you how did you guys even get how did you even start talking about this? Like do you have like a Monday meeting where you're like what, what should we...
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I mean, it happens in every creative agency, you know, like people want fame, people want to do a creative festival project. And you usually talk about, you know, things that are important, things that, you know, you want to change, especially thought that, you know, like we're all concentrated on creating, you know, like projects that uh, have meaning.
0: But Yelena says Project 911 quickly became about more than just creating something to boost the agency's public profile. Uh,
3: but then within a month, something very terrible happened to, to one of our colleagues. Um, it was during the weekend. Uh, she sent me uh, a message that she's not going to be able to come to the office for like at least a couple of weeks. And uh, and then she sends me her picture. And on that picture, instead of her face, I saw a pizza. And what happened was, is that she was, uh, she got divorced with her husband and uh, he was seeing, uh, he was taking his son off on Sundays. So he came to her place and he was tipsy. So, and uh, while she was preparing the kid and the kid is like three years old, uh, he, he like, he, he kind of like started looking through her phone, found some messages that he didn't like. And so he ended up beating her up, raping her and doing that for two f- days in a row with their kids, you know, being in the same apartment. And 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 that that's something that happened. Uh, it kind of, it changed the whole situation, it changed the whole, um, um, the way we looked at the project. All of a sudden, it stopped being something that, you know, like won't happen to you. Something like, you know, you read in the newspaper, but you never associate yourself with happening something like this.
0: But Yelena and her team didn't just channel this experience. They also turned to NGOs working in Russia to combat violence against women, to figure out the most ethical way to turn the issue into a game
3: having a, a, an interactive uh, tool you know where you could see over and over again how how your daughter or your uh, your kid were uh, abused and uh, eventually that people play you know uh, well i mean anyways it's it's still a game you know so it's uh, it's the process that you can well so it's uh, ethically wasn't right so we decided by then, we contacted different um, NGOs to actually, you know, like, find out how, what would be the correct way to ethically, you know, like, create not just a, a festival project from a creative agency, but actually something that could uh, change the way people look at this problem.
0: Did they have, like, answers ready, or did they need to think about it? Was it were they startled by your, by your project? The first,
3: did- the first NGO that we uh, actually contacted was Nasilu yet
0: Okay, so... Now I'm throwing another organization name at you, and this time it's got Russian words in it. Nasilunet means no to violence, and it utilizes the .net website suffix to make for a snappy URL. To find out more about this organization, perhaps the leading group in Russia when it comes to fighting violence against women today, I spoke to Anna Ramashanka, a writer and staff member at Nasilunet.
4: Uh, this year, on the 12th of September, we opened a space, a safe space for women where each woman can come to us without like any documents and it's not necessary and we have psychologists and lawyers and also like group of supports and we have our phone that also works all the time and we can help people and give uh, an advice uh, to them if they have like some problems with domestic violence.
0: Even though she works for an organization specifically devoted to combating violence against women, Anna says she has people in her life who seem to lack some of the basic understanding that Nasilunet tries to promote. If
4: you discuss this with some people who are not inside the topic, they usually say that like uh, it's the fault of the victim and like you should not wear the short skirt when you go to the party and it's really kind of a weird and You even should not go to some regions of Russia to do that, to to hear this kind of speech. You can find it in Moscow. And once I had a discussion with a friend of mine, and he really told me, like, the problem of the woman, if she, like, wears a short skirt. So, uh, like, yes, (laughs) it's a big problem, and it's really different.
0: Do you feel like it's a generational thing? Like, are younger people... Do they have more progressive views or it doesn't break down in terms of generation?
4: I think it's not a question of generation because you can meet like person who is 60 or older and he understands or she that the domestic violence and violence in general is not a good thing. And also you can meet someone who is 17 and he or she will tell you that like, it's all right. I think it's a question of personality of education but not of a generation or an age, but it's my my opinion.
0: The demographics of survivors and assailants in domestic violence cases feature big in reports about specific incidents. In mid-October, AFP Moscow correspondent Ola Chekhovlas wrote about Natalia Tunikova, a Russian woman who was convicted of using unnecessary force when she stabbed her partner while he was pushing her toward an open balcony. I spoke to Ola, and here's how she describes this. He started pushing her towards
5: what she described like as an open balcony in a very high rise building in Moscow. Um, And he was beating her and she was um, scared for her life. And within that moment, she grabbed onto a table in their apartment. And she told me that she grabbed the nearest object that was on the table. And in a sort of instinctual way, it was a knife and she defended herself from
0: him. Highly educated and successful, Tunikova's experience is a reminder that affluence doesn't protect women from home violence. But she has used her resources to do more with her case than many survivors can, including work with wider civic initiatives.
5: So I guess she's quite unique in that sense. Um, I guess because she's quite well-educated and has been able to to take this case further than a lot of other people maybe wouldn't have been able to. Her her case is quite important because she's gone to the European Court of Human Rights. But basically her story is that she she's quite a successful she's in her forties now. She's quite a successful woman. A few years ago she would she stood as a local councillor in local elections. Um she's quite Educated, um, and she found herself in a relationship that went toxic very quickly. I think, I think, as often happens, like there were huge arguments, and then arguments that led to quickly led to violence.
0: Okay, so you might remember earlier in this podcast, I asked Hila what she thought about media coverage of Russia's summer protests and how they were both sort of high-level political rallies related to the Moscow City Duma and elections in other cities, and then there were all these demonstrations in support of women on trial like the one that Ola wrote about. She thinks Russian society, in part because of media coverage and in part just because of grassroots activity, is experiencing a kind of awakening.
5: I think this gave women uh, some kind of hope. Probably the vast, vast, vast majority of these cases are never going to really see the light of day or like make it to the media. But from what all these campaigners and lawyers that I've been talking to have been saying that there's definitely been a change of of mood in society about the way we speak about domestic violence in Russia. A lot of the campaigners described it as some kind of social awakening. And it was, it was seen in the way state media covered the Khachaturian case.
0: Ola is referring here to a trial that's lasted more than a year so far against three sisters, Christina, Angelina, and Maria Khachaturian, who are charged with murdering their father who spent years trapping them at home where he assaulted and raped them.
5: It was so widely covered, it was on TV screens all across Russia, which I don't think has happened before.
0: Ole is not the only one with this impression. When talking about the coverage of domestic violence and violence against women on Russian state television and in the Russian state media, I heard the same thing from others.
6: You you, you wouldn't imagine uh, a federal TV channel uh, to be interested in domestic violence two years ago, for example.
0: That's Nastya Krasilnikova, a former magazine editor and current editor at a documentary film studio. And also she's the author of The Robber's Daughter, a channel on the instant messenger Telegram, where she writes about representations of women in the Russian media.
6: They think that this is something worth talking about, and this is a progress I think, yeah.
0: Despite changes in TV coverage, Nastya still doesn't have the highest opinion of the Russian media when it comes to its coverage of women generally.
6: All the all the stuff you know when you say like Marie Claire or Cosmopolitan or I don't know Elle magazine, you do have them. We do have them here, Russian versions. And all of these magazines, they I I think it's it's honest to say that they hate women. That was a surprise for me when I started. Thinking about it, some of these magazines, they they try to be uh, up to date and they try to mm, talk about feminism and they try to put out some feminist voices. But still, many articles there are just about how to to make, I I don't know, how to make uh, the best blowjob of his life, how to uh, make a man marry you.
0: It's not all dumb stuff like that either. Some of it gets pretty serious and seriously gross. For instance, remember Larry Nasser? Larry Nasser is a convicted serial child molester and a former USA Gymnastics National Team doctor. His sexual assault crimes were the basis for a major scandal about two years ago. And in multiple convictions, he's now been sentenced to more years in prison than any human being could ever live for assaulting and molesting dozens of young women and girls dating back to 1992. When I asked Nastya for an example of shortcomings in the Russian media when it comes to reporting on violence against women, she instantly recalled a headline published at Lenta.ru about the allegations against Nasser.
6: It was called Master Rastashky, Master of Stretching, that's what they called it. And um, the picture uh, they uh, put there uh, was with a gymnast in a small swimsuit and her legs widely spread. And it was such a horrible image altogether. This was a headline that was supposed to be a joke about a guy who used to rape little girls for years. You know? And I found it uh, and I was like, "What the motherfuckers that work there, what, what's wrong with them? And I uh, wrote a, a huge post and it was really hateful because this this is what, mm, I was outraged. And uh, they edited this article after my post and they changed the, the, the headline and they changed the picture. And it was like, and they started writing me things like, you know, we, we do many, many important things. We do many cool articles and we help people and all this stuff. And I told them, just please never contact me again. <laughs> I don't want to listen to this bullshit. Just go away.
0: All right, so there's definitely some problems when it comes to Russian headline news about sexual violence. And as Nastya Krasilnikova makes clear, there's room here for both cautious hopefulness and continued outrage. Hila and I also talked about where things are headed, specifically in the context of Anastasia Yeschenka, a graduate student in St. Petersburg, who was recently murdered and dismembered by her advisor, Oleg Sokolov, who's gone on to dominate a lot of media coverage because of the story's gore and because of Sokolov's obsession with Napoleonic reenactment and cosplay.
2: In the aftermath of the murder of Anastasia Yeschenko, there's been some discussion about the way that coverage in multiple languages is really focused on her murder rather than who she was as a person and kind of positions her as his lover as opposed to a historian in her own right. You come in and you look at this coverage it's all about this you know, murderer, this guy who's admitted to literally chopping, you know, a woman's body to pieces, rather than focusing on Yeshinka herself and what her work was and what she enjoyed doing and what she was like as a person.
0: Yeah, most of the stories have been about like Zakhalov of the murderer. It's a lot of focus on him wearing stupid Napoleon's costumes, and the gory details of the dismemberment, and how he has connections to this and that group. And I mean, some of it has focused on Past allegations of apparent sexual assault and sexual violence and so on. And I would say that that is sort of why this is important, sort of socially, not just, you know, as a gruesome story. But I wouldn't say that that's kind of led the way. I think what's led the way is how wacky that story is. And there's even, I guess, the, the Evgeny Prigozhin's like propaganda empire started to tar a local city councilman. His name is Boris or Boris Vishnevsky. He's a member of the St. Petersburg Legislative Assembly, and he's also a prominent oppositionist. And this uh, media group that's controlled by Yevgeny Prigozhin has been running these stories from unnamed anonymous students that su- supposedly they got these letters from these students claiming that he harassed them, you know, years ago, and they they haven't spoken to the students. They basically just published the letters, but that has sort of reverberated in other outlets, including state television and now the sort of buzz is that Boris Vishnevsky, you know, grubs his students or whatever, and that's kind of getting invented. There doesn't seem to be facts that back this one up. It's anonymous, unverified letters that were published in these very disreputable news outlets and so on. And so, if the if this is maybe like they've the the bad guys have you know found out how to how to kind of.
2: Like weaponize this oh, i was
0: I, I was gonna say that but i hate that verb so much <laughs> but yes that's why right. oh weaponization i don't know everything's weaponized it's like a you know you that's something i try to i try to mock at every opportunity but yes okay <laughs> it, it seems it seems as though they've weaponized it because you know there's a weaponized weaponized information you weaponize
2: mm-hmm.
0: shoes or i don't know, you weaponize anything it's just it's like it's throwaway it's too it's too easy it's gotta be yeah that makes better.
2: sense actually what you're saying here though it, it kind of makes me rethink some of the stuff that i said earlier and I wonder what you, what you think. You are already poking at this issue of like, okay, if you say the vast majority of allegations in a certain area are true, then like, where does that leave the reader when they encounter a case that isn't the typical case, like the one that you're describing?
0: If you were writing a story like that, would you then have in that story? And by the way, ninety nine percent of these cases are are you know it's the victim's always right or something.
2: Well, Okay, in this in this case, it's important to point out that, like, those are cases where, like, the victim has reported somebody and that is not at all what happened. Sure. I mean, the journalist is sort of identifying what the issue is, like, what the context is. So, like, is this a context where it's, like, a domestic violence context in which a, for example... Um,
0: I think there is, like, inherently... Maybe bias is too derogatory a word, but when framing the issue, you're definitely making judgment calls and... You know, I don't know if I don't know if reasonable people could necessarily disagree in the instances that we've highlighted, but unreasonable people certainly could.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, There's
0: definitely room yeah. for disagreement. How reasonable it is, I I, I won't say.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's way too true.
0: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a new podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. Today, we heard from six women about violence against women in Russia, depictions of women in the Russian media, and best practices when writing about this stuff. In order of appearance, I spoke to Marina Pisklakova-Parker, the founder and chair of the board of Center Anna. We talked to Medusa's very own English Language Editions news editor, Hilla Cohen. And then there was Yelena Kalinina, a managing partner at Room 485, followed by Anna Romaschenko, a journalist for Nasilyunyet. And then there was AFP Moscow correspondent Ola Chikovlas. And finally, there was Nastya Krasilnikova, who writes about women in the Russian media. On coming episodes of this show, we'll be discussing leaked databases and how the black market for this information has become a key aspect of Russian law enforcement and investigative journalism in Russia. We'll be talking about Kremlin clan politics and the power of the presidential administration, and Russian tabloid journalism and its reverberations in the Western news media. The Naked Pravda is a new podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more ears. Thanks for listening and come back soon.